Clear prop. Star 73 is Cherokee number two, following twin traffic, three mile final. There's Dustin One Charlie Bravo, Rakesford in runway 25, going uh, four mile final. This is Behind the Prop with United Flight Systems owner and licensed pilot Bobby Doss and his co host, major airline captain and designated pilot examiner Wally Mulhern. Now let's go Behind the Prop. What's up, Wally? Hey, Bobby, how are you? I am fantastic as always. This week, we've uh, decided to tackle something in the early days of training again. Hopefully, it appeals to many of you student pilots out there and those that have become pilots. We're really going to talk about the first half of private pilot training. And we just continue, I, as a flight school owner, continue to see a lot of students, uh, some CFIs, the combination of students and CFIs, spend a lot of time in the pattern, and I hear hallway talk and hallway chatter about things that maybe aren't working. And I just keep thinking that if we spent more time on the first six or seven lessons, those lessons in the pattern would be much more valuable. I know we've kind of teed this up together, Wally, but what are your thoughts about the early days of private pilot training? And should we spend a lot of time in the pattern on the first, second, third lesson? Or is there a greater good to kind of the way syllabi are created for training? Well, I, I, there's, there's um, some fundamentals, and, and we can sit here and we can talk about any, any skill, any physical skill, uh, whether it be uh, playing a musical instrument, uh, playing a sport, or flying an airplane, riding a bike, whatever. Um, there are fundamentals. And, you know, when you, when you hear a football coach get hired, you know, the, the local high school hires a new football coach. He always, you know, at the, the, the briefing where he's talking to all the parents and everything, he always says, we're going to focus on the fundament fundamentals. So we're going to focus on blocking and tackling and, and everybody says, Oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. That's great. Um, uh, but we kind of lose it. And, you know, I, I would think, uh, you know, uh, you know, somebody learning to play golf, you know, six months into their journey to become a a, a competent or a, a decent golfer, uh, somebody to go up to them and say, "Boy, your your grip is really messed up." Um, that that would be kind of a, a time where you'd think, "Well, gee, maybe maybe I just wasted six months of my life." Uh, you know, learning to hit this golf ball in the the hole, and my my grip is totally messed up. And that's we see that a little bit with flying. There's some very basic skills. If you look at, and and I'm going to reference a check ride scenario because that's primarily what I see. Um, if you look at the Airman Certification Standards for private instrument and commercial, it talks about straight and level flight. Well, how much do we go out? And practice straight and level flight as a uh, a private pilot candidate. Probably not very much, not very much at all. And I see a lot of people just really struggling with it, you know, because on 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 these flights we're going to do some straight and level flight. On the private and commercial, we're gonna we're gonna head out on a cross country. And on the the instrument, there are going to be times uh, where you know we're, we're also going to head out on a cross country, and, and we're going to be we're going to be flying straight and level. And I I see people just really struggling with it. You know, they we're trying to fly at at 
3,500 feet straight and level and uh, where the airplane's creeping up. It's creeping up. So what do they do? Well, we're, we're climbing. So guess what? The power setting must be wrong. So we go from 2,400 RPM to 1,900 RPM. Now we're getting low. So now we go back up. And, and the whole problem is the airplane's out of trim is, is the issue. But the the candidate or the applicant has not done very much of this. Yeah, they've done some cross-country time. You know, you don't need a whole lot of dual cross-country time and, and solo cross-country time. Maybe you're all over the place on holding your altitude, so maybe you didn't really practice that. And probably during your dual cross-country time, your instructor's having you do all kinds of other things. They may take the opportunity to put you under the hood for a little while, talk about diversions, talk about emergencies. So you may be, you know, combining other other lessons, but just straight and level flight, you know, is is an issue that a lot of people struggle with. Well, you said musician, and I, I forgot to tell you, but uh, I'll share it here that uh, like one of the percussionists from the Houston Symphony came in and met with me this week about flying. Uh, I have a feeling you'll have a lot of interest in talking to him one day. Mark, if you're listening, um, we'll hope to see you at the school soon. But uh, uh, I, I haven't met anybody that worked full-time for the Houston Symphony, and I knew as a percussionist you would probably want to meet him. But well, I, I would. I'm, <laughs> I've got to say I, I've probably seen him in concert several times. I actually I'm gave sure a check ride. I gave a check ride to a um I gave several check rides to a young man who is a was a horn player with the Houston Symphony and he decided to do a career change and I believe he is now flying for Southwest Airlines. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. The uh, but I don't think those guys that made the Houston Symphony like started in a symphony concert or trying to make it to do an audition to get on the symphony concert no. team um no. i think the fundamentals are key and and really if you're taking flight training you you should be using a syllabus or your instructor or your flight school should be using some syllabus and following that syllabus they can't just wing it it's not just about i hear this all the time it's just about learning how to land learning how to go cross country and learning how to pass your check ride man those might be the big vague buckets but there's so much more to learning how to fly that it's not just those three things. And what I hear all the time is, well, they're struggling to stabilize their descent. Okay. How good are they at descending from 5,000 feet to 4,000 feet? Well, we don't do that very much. We haven't practiced that yet. Well, I mean, I remember my instructor taking me through those exercises of climbing up to three or 4,000 feet and saying, we're going to descend stabilized on the same heading. We're going to hold the same heading in this crosswind because we can pick any heading we want to in the sky right if it's if it's a 12 knot wind you can make that 90 degrees to this fake uh descent path that we want to hold and hold that all the way down you start feeling what the right amount of crab is you start feeling what the right amount of trim is to 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 come in at 65 knots i remember really learning that you don't fly a plane by feel as much as you fly it by power settings, which turned into good conversations about the performance charts and what what is a, a climb at 2,300 RPMs? What's a climb or a descent feel like when it's at 1,700 RPMs? How much flaps? What do flaps do in a 12 or 14 knot crosswind? 
I just got a lot of practice, really high, no stress. Guess how much traffic was out there, Walter? Not much, right? right? There was no traffic. We were able to talk. There wasn't, I think the problem with rushing to the traffic pattern is the stress of just all the radio chatter, all the extend your downwind, we'll call your base. At a towered airport like we have with three run- runways, two of them normally in use, six to 12 planes in the pattern on any given moment, a jet that'll come in and throw all that off. It's just a lot of stress when you haven't practiced it enough out at the out in the traffic. Uh, sorry, out in the practice area. And if you read right. our syllabus, our first seven scenarios are really. I'll read the titles and then we'll talk through some of the details. But it's your first flight, controlling the airplane, increasing awareness, recognizing and recovering from stalls, correcting for the wind, making steep turns. And then you go to take off and landings. I think right. what some young flight instructors forget because we teach them how to do flight instructor things is that those seven lessons prior to take off and landings really are practicing the traffic pattern. They're just out in the practice area, right? You said yeah. it yourself, if you can't go fly for 10 miles at the same altitude on the same heading, you're probably not going to do very good in the downwind. I mean, are you going to recognize getting blown into the runway? If you can't climb a thousand feet and turn 45 degrees, or we'll call it from, if you can't climb from a heading of North and climb a thousand feet and turn to the West two seven zero, you're probably not going to do very good flying the traffic pattern. Those things that we feel like we're just out there practicing, they really are the fundamental components of a traffic pattern. A descent, a climbing turn, a descending turn, a power off stall, a power on stall, a stabilized descent, a constant rate climb at either VX or VY. All those things are the components of the traffic pattern that we're learning in these first seven sessions. And I normally see that those are kind of progress through fairly quick. I'm assuming people have weaknesses or aren't proficient in all of them. And then we come spend a bunch of time in the pattern and the concrete's coming up at us. Well, what does that do? Creates a whole nother level of anxiety that with the noise and the chatter, I would strongly encourage to go out there and play in the practice area with less stress and learn those fundamentals. What do we call a power off stall? It's not, why do we learn a power off saw, I guess, right? Yeah, I, and I wish we would change the name of it. I, I wish we would not call it a power off stall. I thought, I wish we would call it a landing configuration stall. I wish we wouldn't call a power on stall a power on stall. I, I wish we would call that a takeoff configuration stall. That's what we're simulating. Power on stall, we're simulating taking off and, and, you know, losing focus or whatever, uh, and the the power off stall is the landing. We're we're simulating coming in for a landing, um, you know, base to final, and uh, I don't know. We get distracted. That's what we're doing. Yeah, I give a lot of credit to my first instructor, and I know I mentioned his name. His name's Justin, but uh, he did a lot of cool stuff for me to make me feel more comfortable and confident in the aircraft early on. And I can remember we would do. 
we would go out and work on power off stalls. And he would say, look, we're a hundred feet above the ground when we, when this stall is, is occurring and we're going to track to see if you hit the ground or don't hit the ground. Now we were working on this at 4,000 feet. So if our hard, if our quote unquote hard deck was 4,000 feet, I would start a descent in the traffic pattern at 4,500 and we would try to stall the aircraft at a 4,100 foot altitude. And when it stalled, he would see if I could recover before I hit the ground 100 feet below me. Well, you can't practice that at the ground. That would be dangerous. But you know how many times I went below 4,000 feet? A lot early on. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, it was more than once because I wasn't a very good student. But you know what that does? That really opens your eyes to, okay, I better learn how this power off stall works, how I can recover. What does getting the first notch of flaps out really do for the aircraft? And how can I get that 150 foot drop stall, whatever it is, to get to be 75 feet? Can I get good enough to recover in 50 feet? And if I can, then I'm a much safer pilot. And when I do get down to the ground, I'm not not as concerned because I've been through that many, many times before. And that's where I hope CFIs and students work together to start practicing those things because they're going to make you a better pilot. Right. We we have uh, talked about all kinds of things, but if you talk about this pre-solo phase, we had a uh, an occurrence today, we'll call it, the, at the fly school where um, a student that was soloing got to the Delta ramp, was struggling a little bit, tried to come back, couldn't get back, and was overwhelmed and called for help. And not a big deal. Don't shame them. I made many mistakes. But uh, they were having problems with the aircraft moving. Wally, what what do you think might have been the problem on the ground? Um, thinking maybe the parking brake was set? Yes, it was. The whole oh, time. Boy. Oh, boy. From, from, from United Flight Systems over to the Delta ramp and back. And by the time she got close, uh, she kind of gave up because she thought she could tell something was really wrong, right? And it's one of those things where she's probably read that checklist and checked that a thousand times, but got fixated on there was something else happening, didn't follow that checklist. And whether it's taxing or any other maneuver, we could all get really caught up in missing one line or one part of the maneuver and creating big problems for ourselves. Thank goodness nothing happened. It was a, it was a quick fix. And obviously she learned a lot and said it'll never happen again. And that's that we do learn from those things, but boy, what if a instructor right after they did the walk around and the student got back out to go to the bathroom, set the parking brake and remind, you know, let that person experience that hardship while on the ramp for the first, why are we rolling? It's weird. You, giving yeah. a lot of gas, <laughs> you know, yeah. all those yeah. things in the first few hours of training create fundamentals that will never be broken in my opinion. Right. I, yeah. I would suggest, and I would ask, I'll ask her in a few months, you forget to check the parking brake anymore. What's the likelihood that she won't check the parking brake ever again on a flight? Yeah, that that's not going to happen, you know. And and I've I've uh, I've been involved in many check rides where the chocks were left in, and um, 
I the, the one that comes to mind is is I I saw that they were left in. I I let the the young man go ahead and get in, and and I got in, and and he commented about all the people that were walking by us and were just really friendly and waving at us because we've <laughs> never really had that happen. And I said, yeah, they're they're really being nice today. I said, uh, they must must know it's a check ride. He goes, oh yeah, that that's it. They must know it's a check ride. That's why that's why everybody's waving at us. Well, they were kind of motioning to the nose of the airplane. So anyway, but th- there was an example of you know I could have uh, before we even started uh, said something to him, but this is a real world thing. And in this case, we started up, and the airplane didn't move, and then he went, oh, my gosh. And he got out, and he, he moved the chocks. And uh, I thought it was a great learning experience. I don't think he'll ever forget the chocks again. Yeah, I'm sure I've shared the story, but I probably my first flight to Galveston alone with some friends was a daytime flight down, nighttime flight back, did all the pre-flighting on the way back. Everybody went to the bathroom. We came to the plane. Started the plane, the plane just wouldn't move when I gave it gas. And I could almost feel this kind of tugging in the, the back end of the plane. And I was like, golly. Sorry, guys. I got to shut this down. I'll be right back. Shut it down, turn the plane off, jump outside, untie the tail, and then jump back in and go. How many times do you think I've ever left the tail untied or tied down since then? Yeah. It happens once. Never. Never. Yeah. yeah, I uh, I had we learned from this I stuff. had a I had a situation flying charter back in the day in a Beechcraft Baron, uh, and uh, I had I went up and I had to pick up a patient and I was going to fly him down to Houston, and uh, we're of all things we're flying him down to Houston for a heart transplant. Okay, so obviously he has something wrong with his heart. And what do I do? I take off from Bastrop, Louisiana, and I realized that the uh, cargo uh, door was not latched. Now, luckily, in this particular airplane, it had a little catch that kept it from flying completely open, but we took off, and I'm looking at this thing that's open about an inch, and uh, I had to tell my passengers, I'm sorry, i got to go back, shut down the engines, get out, latch the cargo door, get back in and go and uh we we joked when we got to houston i thought well hey if you're a heart transplant uh, recipient and uh you just went through that um uh maybe you don't need a new heart so anyway yeah so well I we're kind of starting to tell some stories but i i'm i've i've i said to her today and i would say it i'm not picking on her we all are going to make mistakes and they're good ones if they don't hurt anybody or don't bend any metal, right? So um, all of those things make us better pilots. But I do think when we talk about the syllabus and we talk about private pilots and what they're learning early on, we, the collective whole of aviation instructors, teachers, mentors, we kind of, we, we, I think we just know too much. We know so much, we can't put ourselves in their shoes and not really know where to get started in all of this, whether it's really learning how to fly and how, where we get started or the first dozen lessons and what those are going to encompass, the building blocks aren't there. It's 
I say this a lot to, to people when they come in and want to learn how to fly. We know how to learn how to ride a bike. I don't know why we all know learn how to learn how to ride a bike. I think it's because we all maybe did it, but you, you, you start on a big wheel or something like a big wheel. Then you get on a tricycle and then you put on training wheels. And then you, your dad, normally your dad, runs behind you with their hand on the seat until you can let, they can let go. And one day it just clicks. We know that. There's not quite the same progression that everyone knows on how to fly a plane. But I think that's what I wanted to share today was that there is. It's the syllabus and it's learn how to fly straight and level. Yeah. Learn how to climb yeah. and descend. Stabilized, right? In both ways. Uh, learn what's happening with wind while you're descending and climbing. How do you, how does the crab change? What does left turning tendencies do? I always challenge new flight instructors and I'm kind of giving one of my tricks away. Left turning tendencies is something you don't talk about. I don't think you talk about much after the private pilot check ride. Uh, you, yeah. You've done a lot of check rides. Uh, How many instrument commercial CFI add-ons do you do where you're talking about P factor? Yeah. That, that's a good point. And that's so point. once we're past that point and we're flight instructors, what's what? It, the only thing a flight instructor says probably for the first four weeks of their training is a little bit more right rudder, a little bit more right rudder, a little bit more right rudder. Because if they don't yeah. say it and correct it, the plane's going to go left. Yeah. But they've flown yeah. with more advanced pilots for so long. The, the CFIs they're, that they're flying with, the people that they're time building with, the instrument people they're time building with, who doesn't know to apply more right rudder? And so yeah. when they first get that real first zero-hour student and they're they're yeah. letting them have the controls, where's that plane going to go? That's and then they got to think about left-turning tendencies again. Yeah. And it's important, and it's a fundamental that we need to teach, and we need to feel it in the sky, and we need to feel it close to the ground. So – um, basic stuff to all of the, those of us that are flying, but those first time students that have sub four hours of flight time dual, obviously they don't know these things. And yeah. the more we can teach those fundamentals, the more we can exercise that muscle. I think the better we get at doing the, the other things like landing, flying instrument you know, approaches. You, you think about this. Okay. So how many landings do we, uh, give a student prior to soloing i i you know there there's no number but i i would say that um let's just say 70 landings does that sound reasonable that the, yeah. the student has 70 landings with their instructor before they solo so they've done this thing 70 times how many times do we practice leveling off and just flying straight and level um maybe about two or three okay and and uh you know the the whole pitch power trim thing i think our instructors probably say that to the the student a couple times but they're going to say right rudder right rudder <clears throat> hundreds of times um and so i i this is something i see check rides we climb up to whatever altitude here if we're dealing with the bravo airspace Maybe we're leveling at uh, 1,500 feet to start out with. The airplane gets pitched over. Immediately the power comes back, and we're doing about 70 knots, and we're just struggling to to fly. You know, it's pitch, 
pitch the nose over 1500 feet let things kind of settle down give it I don't know 10 15 20 seconds then set your power to whatever power setting you want you and you should know that by by your charts you know do I want to apply 55 percent 65 percent whatever power setting you want 2300 rpm say you know then pull your power back and then trim the airplane so it can be flown hands-free we really shouldn't have to work to fly in cruise the airplane should be able to be flown hands-free yeah, and I, I, again, I'll give Justin credit. I doubt he listens, but I give him a lot of credit. We did so many things to practice that I can remember. And when I made the mistake of getting to 1500 and pulling the power and then putting the nose over, he's like, how do you, how do you know what the plane's going to do in the next 10 seconds? Cause you can't trim it. You don't know where you're going to end up. And he really taught me how to fly by the numbers. And I, when I get to time build with people or I do some flying with others, I always ask them, how do you, how do you fly the plane? What is your method of flying the plane? And I don't think a lot of people have one. They kind of just do what they've been told, do what they've been learned. And I, I'm a, I'm a pretty succinct guy. I know, well, I fly 182 that's got a constant speed prop. So I know what I want my manifold pressure to be. I know what my, I want my RPMs to be. And I know what I'm going to do both straight and level cruise, and I know what I'm going to do when I'm climbing. And I fly by numbers. I tell everyone I'm a, I'm a fly-by-numbers guy, and I know what power setting because maybe I care about how much fuel I'm going to burn. I know exactly yeah. what I'm going to do based on those numbers. Yeah, and, you know, I, I just I just gave a young man a check ride the other day, and we were talking about the uh, performance numbers and he he went into a very long explanation dissertation that uh, those numbers are set by test pilots in a brand new airplane, and I'm not a test pilot, and these airplanes uh, are older and and uh, you know it's not ideal conditions, so uh, the 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 numbers in the book are going to be all wrong, and uh, that's. I mean, that is an attitude that he has been taught. He didn't come up no, with that. No, for himself. sure. And I will just say this, because I used to be a little bit of, of a, in that court, a little bit. And, and I, there's a little bit of uh, validity to those, those statements, a little bit. But I will say this about my, my Saratoga. I've got a 1980 model Saratoga, so it's 43 years old. 43 years old, um, and it's been well-maintained, and it's in, it's in real good shape. But the numbers f- compared to the original POH are scary how close they are. It is just, I mean, it, like it will tell me that uh, at, at a given altitude, a given power setting, I should get 167 knots, and I might get 168 knots. I mean, I'm a, I'm a knot off. That's like a half percent. That's like a 0.75 percent difference. Um, Crazy. The fuel flows. It's it's amazing how close the numbers are. And I would challenge for you aircraft owners or or you renters, go out there and just find an airplane and look and see what what true airspeed you're supposed to get at a given altitude. You know, based on the conditions. Go out there and see how close it is. I'll bet you would be amazed at how close the the manufacturer's data is to what you 
what you're really going to fly. Which will translate to everything else as well, right? Your takeoff rolls, your landing distances, all those other charts start adding up. And then you'll probably want to fly by the numbers. You'll be shocked at how much it would make sense to fly based on those numbers. By the way, you've owned that Saratoga for quite some time, right? Yeah. And we've known each other for quite some time, right? Oh, you want to go flying? I've just never been in it. I I don't know why that's <laughs> such a hard thing for us to do. I mean, I I mean, I'll cover the fuel or something. I you oh, need to fly my planes go. all the time on check rides. I do. Uh, I do. I got yeah, we I need to go fly there. there. Yeah. You know, and so another thing, this is something else that that we really hadn't expected to get into on this podcast, but you know, having an idea, a ballpark idea of what the performance of your airplane is is something that I I believe we ought to know. I think um you know, you should know about what your takeoff distance is. You should know you know, we we go to the store, we go, and I've used this example many times, we go down to the local cafe at the airport and you order a burger and fries and a Coke, and and you're expecting probably to spend maybe $12, $14. We, we have pretty good prices down in Texas. Um, California, maybe $22. But anyway... You have an idea of what to expect without even looking at the price. If if the 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 person says that'll be seventy one dollars, I think you would say, "Wait, that that doesn't make sense." So, uh, you know, the first thing I do with with all my check rides is I I talk about it, the cross country flight we're going on, and I say, "Okay, how far is it from uh, where we're going to from from here to there?" You know, and the you know the person may say. You know, 262 miles, okay? 262 miles in in the airplanes that we're dealing with, about 100-knot airplanes, 172s, Warriors, that's about 2.6 hours. So I'm expecting the person to say about two and a half to three hours. And, you know, sometimes I'll say we're, you know, our flight time's an hour 23. Right off the bat, I know we got some issues. But it doesn't translate sometimes to the applicant. Uh, you know, you ought to know, two, 262 miles ought to take you about 2.6 hours, and and that's 26 gallons at 10 gallons an hour. These things burn a little bit less than that, so we're thinking maybe 20, 22 gallons an hour, or, or, or total fuel burn. Um, mm-hmm. I think we, we ought to know that. Yeah, there's no question, and I, I just I keep coming back to this early training. These people... The, the students should be expecting to learn this. The instructor should be giving this because it is the basic fundamentals that will transcend forever. It's not uh, rocket science. It's just a, a, it's a single-engine aircraft. And I know we've said, too, you don't need to know all the, the metrics on every little piece of the engine, but you, you, you should be able to learn what those performance charts say, what you should expect. Because if you're taking off, and you in, in the same example – if you're 3,000 feet down the runway and you're not getting to 55 knots, I don't think I'm going to try the next 3,000 feet to keep going. Right. Right. I, I'm going to abort. Something's yeah. not right. I don't know necessarily what it is. I ain't got to be a mechanic, but something's not adding up. Everything might sound the same, um, but it's not going to be the same. 
So hey, it might, uh, it might he, be the parking brake. Might be the parking brake. <laughs> might be. Uh, if she listens, she's going to be mad at me. But I, I apologize. It's, it's good for you. We, I'm glad we all got to learn. I'm glad we got to use it on the show today. I think the key is really taking taking control of your training with your instructor, talking about the syllabus. If you're struggling when it does come time for the traffic pattern, break down those fundamentals a little bit more. Spend a little bit more time in the practice area with less stress. Don't bring it back to the concrete coming up to you. Another thing I think Justin always did good for me was early on, we did do two laps when we came back. He always let me experience and kind of demonstrate and talk me through the landing, which was much better than the run out there, practice, and get fit in and be done. The two or three laps were, were very valuable, but it wasn't overwhelming. And I would encourage flight instructors to do the same things with their students. Anything else, Wally? Yeah, I, I just I just want to uh, get back to the, the parking brake situation. We are not, absolutely not, and I don't even know who this uh, young lady is who, who had this happen to her. Uh, we're laughing with her. We're not laughing at her. Okay. We've all made these mistakes. I've told the story on this podcast many times how I took off in a Cessna 150 with a student with a rudder gust lock installed and, uh, he missed it. I missed it. We both missed it. And, uh, he was a CFI student. So a little bit more advanced, but no excuse. Cause I missed. And, and, and the funny thing is there's a big red, remove before flight remove before flight flag that was flapping as we were climbing out and the airplane wasn't uh, uh acting very right so we're we're not laughing at anybody we're laughing with somebody because uh we've all done we've all made these mistakes and we'll continue to make them because we are human no doubt and i would say if we we only had guests on here that never made a mistake we would have never had any guests on here. I think every person we've ever had on here has admitted to or discussed or talked about a mistake. So with that, don't make mistakes if you can avoid them. If you make them, learn from them. Always fly safely and stay behind the prop. Thanks for checking out the Behind the Prop podcast. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out online at BehindTheProp.com. Behind the Prop is recorded in Houston, Texas. Creator and host is Bobby Doss. Co-host is Wally Mulhern. The show is for entertainment purposes only and is not meant to replace actual flight instruction. Thanks for listening and remember, fly safe. Fly safe.